With that said, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel 9, page 281 of your pew Bibles. There are some passages in the Bible, especially when you find yourself in some of the historical stuff, some of the more minor prophets, the way I, passages that are really difficult. And then there are some passages, man, they just, they just do all the work for you. And this is one of those passages uh, that it just does all the work for us. And so my job's quite easy this morning. Your job's easy this morning. It is a pretty straightforward passage. One of my favorites of the Old Testament. The hardest part is pronouncing the name of Phibosheth. And that name with the pronunciation will be on the quiz uh, immediately following the message. So with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We want to read the entire chapter. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled at his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent out and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was laying in both feet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always you open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth we would speak the hope of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience to Jesus. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Be seated. You may recall a few weeks ago we... We looked at the end of 2 Samuel 7. Remember, chapter 7 is about the Davidic covenant that God cuts with, with David. And the, the latter half of that chapter was a prayer. It was a poetic prayer that David offered to God uh, in thanksgiving. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about the attitude of thanksgiving and how that is a, a Christian trait we rarely discuss as Christians, if, if you were to put over here, uh, what does it look like to be a Christian? We would say things like love and humility and, and sacrifice and, and service. And all those things are certainly true and important. But I argue that, that we should add thanksgiving to that. Though we rarely address it or talk about it, it is uh, all over the Bible. It, it saturates the Bible. And yet we don't think enough about it. Okay, can I add one that's even more rare? Is that the right way to put that? Can you be more rare? That seems 
I don't know, English professors here? Doesn't matter. You're from the South, you know what I'm saying, right? But, but what, what would be a, a, an attitude, a Christian attitude that is more rare, I'm going to coin it, it's copyrighted, uh, 2021. What is more rare than that of Thanksgiving? I think without a doubt it's kindness. I remember years ago that I did a series of sermons on the uh, 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 fruit of the spirits, and I came to kindness, and I thought, what in the world do you do with that? We all know love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and meekness and self-control and faithfulness, but kindness, what do you do with that? Yeah, like Thanksgiving, kindness is all over the Bible. We are exhorted to be kind. For example, in Ephesians 4.12, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice there that kindness is defined there as being tenderhearted and being forgiving. And notice that forgiveness is defined by the gospel. We forgive because we have been forgiven. By the way, let me remind you, in an age of COVID and constant Criticism and division, particularly over political issues, no one has ever sinned against you more than you have sinned against your father. There is no sin that you shall not forgive. In Colossians, Paul says, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. It just sticks out now, doesn't it? Before, you would say, oh, meekness, humility. Yeah, that's what a Christian is. And there it is just right there in the text. You tell me if I'm getting it wrong. You put on kindness. Or consider the godly woman of Proverbs 31. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So notice here that kindness isn't just something you do. It is something you speak. It's more than niceness. Maybe that's our problem with kindness. It's more than that. Or consider how often we miss this in, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient, right? Wives, love is kind, and we argued several weeks ago, I believe it was during Mother's Day and Father's Day, that, that I argued that patient and kindness is, is, is Paul, he lay, it's his thesis, love is patient and kind, and what follows comes from those two attributes. Because it's patient and kind, it doesn't envy or boast. Because it's patient and kind, it isn't arrogant or rude. Because it is patient and kind, it does not insist on its own way. It, it, it isn't irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Why? Because love is patient, and there's that word again, it's kind. And then, of course, we've already referenced it. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. By the way, this is important to notice when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. There's no S there. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. That is, you can take and pick which fruit you want. I like love. I like joy. I don't like patience. I like, well, not self-control. Let's be honest. We're Americans. I like faithfulness. No, it's fruits. Those who have the Spirit bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit is defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What David shows us here is exactly what kindness is. In fact, he says there in verse 1, he wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And so what we have here are five, uh, to help us to see what kindness looks like, five things about kindness worth noting. It shouldn't take us long to look at these. 
The first is that kindness is proactive. Notice it there in verses 1, 2, 3. David is minding his own business. Remember, the chronology is off a little bit here. We, we've talked about that, particularly in chapter 7, which then gets confused with chapter 8 because all the battles are happening. So, so, so the, the chronology doesn't always work. But what you have then is David has won all these battles and everything. He seems to have everything he ever wants and needs, right, in, in the way it is organized in, in the book. And he says, there's one thing I forgot. And that is a covenant I made, not just with God, but the covenant I made with Saul's son, my best buddy, BFS, hashtag. And, and that is Jonathan. And so he, 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 he remembers that covenant we find in 1 Samuel 20. You remember it well. You remember, Jonathan says, look, God has anointed you king, not me. Even though I'm the heir, God has anointed you king, and I respect that. I will submit to you as my king, my future king. But do this, take care of my children. Let's make a covenant today. And so, so Jonathan and David swore by their love for each other as friends. And thus, what David does here is he seeks to honor that promise by proactively setting out to show kindness. That is important there, right? Mephibosheth is probably a little leery about being near David. After all, it was his grandfather that was king. It was his grandfather that tried to kill the sitting king of Israel. Verily I say to thee, that's not a good position to be in. He is likely viewed as a political enemy. No doubt that the day prior to Saul's death, he had a lot of friends and a lot of influence and a lot of people around him. But the day Saul died, those numbers begin to dwindle. The day David is crowned king, they're virtually all gone. Now what David does is he proactively sets out to show kindness. Notice there, is there anyone left at the household of Saul? That I can show, particularly the line of Jonathan, kindness. Mephibosheth isn't expecting it. He isn't demanding it. He doesn't deserve it. David seeks him out, for that is what kindness does. Chances are you've making the mistake that I've made this week in confusing kindness with niceness. If, 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 if I'm walking into a restaurant or, or I was going to say Walmart, that's an automatic door. So that, walking into a restaurant and there's someone behind me, I will hold the door open for them. Why? Because I want them to think I'm a nice guy. Right. And we've taught our children. This is how you you treat people. If someone's behind you, you open the door for them. And if there's two doors, they'll probably open the door for you. It's common courtesy. Do you just want to be a nice person? But you notice here, this is not about being nice. It's about being kind. It is a proactive kindness he shows to someone who can't make demands and frankly doesn't deserve it. Not only that, notice that kindness is open-handed. It is open-handed. What do you think David expected when he asked if anyone from Saul's house was still around? You think he was expecting someone who was handicapped? I doubt it. People crippled like Mephibosheth is here in the ancient Near Eastern world, including Israel, did not enjoy the protections and the honor they do today. Think about it. If, 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 if you ever watched like the, uh, uh, the Special Olympics, there is something good about that. I don't know. What, 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 there's something, something that feels good about yourself. You celebrate that in ways that you wouldn't celebrate other just general Olympics, Right? And, 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 and to celebrate that, maybe you've known people who have overcome limitations because of whatever the handicap might, might be. There's a, there's a sort of honor that we, we, put, we, we put on people in that position. That's not the case the way it was back then. You were at best a beggar. After all, remember, it was blind Bartimaeus who his one job is to 
is to sit on the roadway, to be dropped off every morning, to sit there with a bucket, and he would beg, because that is how he's going to provide for his family. Remember what we see in John chapter 9, my favorite story in John's gospel about another blind man. You remember the question the disciples asked Jesus? Who sinned, this man or his parents? The same thing we might assume here. People might see Mephibosheth uh, uh, crippled and handicapped, and they might assume, oh, I see what happened there. God has judged Mephibosheth because of Saul's sin. God has condemned Mephibosheth because Jonathan wouldn't be a good enough king. It's easy in such a culture to lay such burdens upon the handicapped and others. Yet what David sought to show was kindness despite the circumstances of the one he's showing kindness to. One can imagine Mephibosheth is being carried by others to the throne room, and you can kind of wonder what's going through his head. Oh no, David found me. Oh no, David has summoned me. And maybe those who came, the messengers of David and delivery boys of David, Shrek and all, all come and they say, we've got to take you before the king. And he began to wonder, what's he going to do to me? What's he going to say to me? Because everyone else in the household is dead. But no, what David does is, is he shows him kindness. David did not look at him and say, you are unworthy of the king's kindness. He looked at him and and gave him and showed him a kindness that is not only proactive, it is open-handed. Thirdly, kindness is graciousness. Notice what happens there in verse 8. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Notice the motivation for David's kindness is not for personal gain, to boost his reputation, or to feel good inside. No, the people of grace show grace. Mephibosheth's response to David is a natural one. Why would David show him kindness? In fact, this this is shown really in in, in two ways here. The first way we see this is Mephibosheth's name. By the way, I love saying Mephibosheth, and I think you do too. You just don't want to admit it. Mephibosheth, it just rolls off the tongue. Unlike most Hebrew, it just rolls off the tongue. But there's some debate regarding the exact meaning of his name. Some debate. We have a good idea what it means. One thing is clear is the latter half of his name comes from the Hebrew word meaning shame. And so if we were to take his whole name, Mephibosheth, it likely means a dispeller of shame. One can imagine as he was born and his handicap was made evident, he was given the name of shame. So what you have then is is a man named Shame fallen before the king. Who am I that you would show me kindness? Not only his name, but notice his position. His name is that of Shame. His position is that of a dead dog. By the way, when you read dog in the Bible, please don't read it as pets. It's a big, big difference between our world and, and in their world. Dogs show up all over the Bible. We uh, show up in the New Testament. Uh, uh, the Gentiles compare to, to dogs. And, and you, you remember the story of Elijah, what happens to Jezebel, right? Those weren't your neighbor's dogs licking up the blood of the fallen queen. Those are wild animals. Have you ever uh, seen the movie or read the book To Kill a Mockingbird? Well, one of the best scenes there is, is when Atticus Finch shoots the uh, rabid dog. 
right? And everyone is scared to death because it's a rabid dog. Okay, take that one rabid dog and make all dogs like that. They are wild dogs that we may consider wolves or coyotes today. So he says, well, what am I to you but a dead dog? Something to be discarded, something to be loathed, something that is unworthy to be in your presence. And by the way, this reference to a dog isn't accidental in the narrative. While David was still on the run from Saul in 1 Samuel, he confronts Saul, his would-be murderer, and he just wanted to know why. You remember the story, right? Remember, like, Saul and David run into each other all the time, like Batman and Joker, and, like, nothing gets done, right? You're waiting, David, you have your chance. Knock him out, right? Arrest him, right? You remember, he cuts his robe at one point and, and does all that sort of stuff. Well, at one point, David just rolls out of, of the club, and he's like, yo, we got to figure this out. What's your beef, yo? It's, it's the New King James. And, and, and you remember, David uses interesting language. In, in 24, 14, he says, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? There it is. A dead dog? You see, this language isn't an accidental. David understands the position Mephibosheth is, is in. And in political world, there's the good side and the bad side. And you better hope you're on the good side and they win the next election. So David was on the bad side when the good side was in, was in power. After all, the good side is always the ones in power. Have you ever noticed that? And, 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 and so now that David is in power, he's the good guy. Mephibosheth is on the bad side. David said, no, no, that's, that stuff needs to stop. I know what it's like to be a dead dog. You're not that at all. You see, kindness is gracious. That may be Mephibosheth's name and position, but that is not how David chooses to see him. Fourthly, kindness is generous. David does not merely pat Mephibosheth on the head out of pity. He lavishes him with wealth and favor. We, we see it there starting in verse 11, right? That, that, that uh, he assigns Ziba um, according to all that the Lord King's commands his servants, so will your servant do. He, he said that Mephibosheth, you have access to my household, you have access to my, my table. Now, it is very possible Mephibosheth had access to some wealth. He is, after all, the grandson of the deposed king. He had some wealth, some land, but now he has all the access to all the nation's wealth. So much so he can sit next to the king at the king's table. You know who sits at the king's table? The king's family. You just don't roll up in there and, and, and have a slice of bread with the king. You have to be invited. You have to be part of the family. So now he is rich indeed. Finally, kindness is unending. Mephibosheth, ever grateful for the king's kindness, always enjoyed the king's kindness. And it's very clear in verses 12 and 13, isn't it? Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Notice there, it wasn't just that Mephibosheth was shown kindness. His son was shown kindness. And this would continue so long as David was king. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So he lived in Jerusalem because he ate at the king's table. But David's kindness wasn't limited to circumstances, culture, or convenience. It wasn't limited to the cameras that were watching, the PR that his campaign advisors gave him. It was kindness. Mephibosheth and his household enjoyed such kindness for the king, from the king for the rest of his life. And so you see it there. David models for us what real kindness is. And so when we read that the fruit of the Spirit is kindness, 
or let us put on kindness. We don't need to look any farther than David, do we? But I think we're making a big mistake here. And that mistake is a common one among us Americans. We've talked about this before. Perhaps the greatest mistake you and I make in reading the Bible is that we assume that I, the reader, must be the hero of the story. See, when we come to the story, we think, oh, I'm David in this story. It's my job to be kind. Well, here's my five points straight from the text. Now I know what kindness looks like. Now let's go, go home and be nice to the waitress at Cracker Barrel. See, we applied it. And when we do that, we exchange the gospel for law. We exchange holiness for morality. You've noticed so far we've said nothing about Jesus. And when we say nothing about Jesus, we haven't actually read the text. Because the text is very clear. You and I are not David. Think about how often we do this. Uh, there's, we read the past, whether our story or the biblical story, we think that I would have been different than all those bad guys, right? I wouldn't have been the one screaming crucify him, right? That, would, that wouldn't, wouldn't have been me. There's no way I would have engaged in the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they couldn't even find 10 righteous people, even within Lot's own family. Well, you remember last year we talked about the story of David and Goliath. Do you remember what the real problem in reading that story is? We assume I'm the good guy, the hero of the story. I'm David. And Goliath is whatever uh, personal giants I may have in my life. Typically in America, it's financial giants. It's, it's personal giants. It's family giants. It's health giants. Or whatever giant you want to make up. And then what we want to hear from Sunday morning is, give me five smooth stones, a, a stone of faith, a, a stone of love, a, a stone of patience, a, a stone of, of perseverance. And then I'm going to knock out my own giants with those five smooth stones, all the while missing the complete point of the story. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that story in some detail, that, that the seed serpent line runs right through that story, and that Goliath is a type of serpent, and that David is a type of Messiah, which means you ain't him. In fact, in the story of David and Goliath, you want to know where you are? You're not the one slinging the sword to decapitate the giants. You're not the giant slayer. You're not the dragon slayer in the story. No, you're like David's brothers who know that if you were to stand before the real giant, you'd be destroyed in an instance. You're the coward. You're the weakling. You're the one who can't defeat the giant because your giants are bigger than poverty. Your giants are bigger than Republicans this or Democrats that. Your giants are much bigger than that annoying neighbor who plays rock music at all hours of the night. No, your giant is your own depravity. You can't defeat it. Your giant is death. You can't conquer it. Your giant is the devil who's, who must be crushed. Thus, the real hero of the story is Christ, isn't it? The son of David. The same thing is happening here. You're not David here. When we see the right perspective, we understand that the point of the story is not that we can be moral people, but that we can be holy people. Not that we can be the center of the story, but that Christ may rule and reign in our own hearts and lives. And there we must see the gospel. You notice here we can see it when we realize, if I'm not David, maybe at best I am Mephibosheth. 
It changes everything, doesn't it? It changes from simple guide to how to be kind, and all of that is true, how to be kind, to see what great kindness the Lord in Christ has shown me. After all, go go back up to uh, verse 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show whose kindness is he talking about there? God's. You skipped over that, didn't you? Because you thought you were the hero of the story. What David demonstrates here is not the kindness I show others, as important that is. The kindness God continues to show me in Christ. Can I just show you how this works out from this text? First of all, we see here, Mephibosheth learns that I am loved. I am loved. Notice there in verse, uh, uh, well, we'll get to verse six, but one of the things you'll see in the first six verses is how David is spoken of. We, we, we talked about in, in, in chapter seven that David is hardly ever called king, even though he is king, because the real king in chapter seven is God. Here in chapter 9, he's called king all over the place. Look at it there, verse 2. And the king said to him, verse 3, and the king said, the end of verse 3, Ziba said to the king, verse 4, and Ziba said to the king, verse 5, then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir. And then notice there, verse 6, David said, Mephibosheth? What a, what a, what a striking change it is. It's almost like the writer wants you to see King, 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 David. What has changed between verses 1 and 5 into verse 6? What has changed is Mephibosheth has shown up. So before what we have is the relationship between king and subjects. Now what we have is a relationship between David and Mephibosheth. So what we get here is that David isn't doing something to get good PR. David's motivation for showing kindness to one who doesn't deserve it is rooted in love. Love is never about what I can receive from the other. It's always about how I can give to the other. That's why Disney love will never work out in our culture. If you don't believe me, turn on the TV. It's not working. Because we enter a relationship thinking, what am I to get from this rather than what can I give to this relationship? By the way, apply that to the church, will you? Instead of thinking as a consumer, we have to think as Christians who have been giving the love of God. What great love this is, the New Testament says, that Christ love us even while we were yet sinners. It's rooted in love. Secondly, we see here Mephibosheth concludes that I am secure. One of the things uh, we had growing up was there was no open door policy to my parents' room. Uh, I think my wife had a very different upbringing because I learned early on when the kids could walk, we suddenly have an open door policy to our bedroom, right? I, I, like, I, I did not vote for that, right? I did not get the memo for that. Thanks for the warning. And it got to the point, especially when both were toddlers, that every time there was thunder and lightning outside uh, because of my migraines and because I got kicked out of the bed. And and so I would just go sleep on the couch. One time I I grabbed the mattress of one of the kids, drug it on the floor because it's this big. Right. And I'm I'm, I'm a little larger than that. And so I just slept on the floor on top of the mattress. Didn't do that after that first night. Still got kinks in my back. Right. And then every time something happened, I got kicked out of the bed. Right. They had open-door policy. We didn't have an open-door policy, mom and dads. They they didn't go for that. But if I needed an open-door policy, I just didn't tell them I was there. That's what's right. In fact, there's plenty of stories of my parents stepping on me when they got up in the morning. 
But one thing I knew as a young man was if I am scared, genuinely scared, I wouldn't go in to wake mom and dad because they'd tell me, get over it, go back to bed, right? No, heartless people, you should meet them. And, and, but I knew that if I just went in with my blanket and my pillow, they had a bed that had drawers underneath the bed, right? And, I, and so it was, it was wood. I knew that if I could just touch the wood, Maybe on my back, maybe on my nose. If I could just touch the wood, that was as close to my parents I could get and I'd be safe. We see the same thing here happening with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, you have access to the king. You are welcome here at my table. A few years ago, the kids were really hungry and they let us know over and over and over again. We were marching to a restaurant or to the grocery store somewhere to get some food. And what do we get? Oh, hungry. It's been five minutes since they had candy. I'm starving. I can't go any longer. And then I had to say, kids, you need to know something here. Just so we're clear. I will not let you starve. You are loved and you are safe. Stop worrying about it. Closer Mephibosheth is to the king, the more loved and secure he is. You know, what's interesting is that Mephibosheth is not the first person in the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel to dine with the king, a non-family member to dine with the king. You know who the first person is, at least for our purposes? It's David. You remember after David slays the giant and he, he, he woos the depression away from Saul. Remember Saul brings David in, has him marry the princess, and he has access to the king's table. But what is different between the household of Saul and the household of David is that when David was welcomed to the table, he was in danger. You remember when Saul takes a javelin, throws it right by him, nails to the wall right next to him, and David gets the memo, maybe I'm not safe here. But because David seeks to show the kindness of God, Mephibosheth can know he is always safe and secure. He is secure. Therefore, he has a place of honor and love. Thirdly, I am his. By the end of the story, Mephibosheth becomes a type of Lord. He has people under his authority. He has servants. He has a house. As land, he has a position of respect and honor. And just to make sure we don't miss the point, the narrative ends by reminding us that he was lame in both feet. Do you see that detail? It's put to right at the end. See, in his society, he would have been a nobody, but because of his association to the king, because of the king's kindness to him, he had respect and honor in that society. The question then is, why did Mephibosheth, handicapped in a cruel age, possess such authority and honor? It is simply because not he was associated with the household of Saul. He had to give that up. But because he is associated with the household of David, the closer he was to David, the higher the honor he held. And the same remains true all of us. When our identity is alone in Christ, we possess the highest honor. 
Why then do we fret about others? Why then do we worry about threats from others, resentment from others, the opinions of others? Why do we do that? Is your identity in them? Or is it in Christ? Although we are worthy to be considered dead dogs, verse 8, because of our Savior, we are called sons and daughters. Most scholars agree, and I think there's precedent for this in this text. What David essentially does, whether it's legal or, or, or not, and that it's made official legally or not, is that Mephibosheth essentially becomes an adopted son of David. And so what we see here is a picture of the doctrine of adoption in the Christian faith. Can I show you how it works in, in the Bible as briefly as we can, and then, then we can go get dinner? I ran really far this weekend. I'm starving constantly, so that's why you're getting all the references to food. So forgive me. And then we're going to read a story about eating at the king's table, right? It's just awful, awful. In Exodus chapter 4 is really where this begins. Uh, Moses is going to confront Pharaoh, and he just uh, had the experience at the burning bush. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. You shall say to him, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Serve me. That's the real genesis to this doctrine. God is bringing Israel on as sons. This is why you can get in Hosea 11, uh, 1, which I for some reason didn't put it up there. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That is later used in application to Jesus. Ezekiel 16, we, we get to the real root of it. And that is that we, are, we have been orphaned by sin in the world. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem. Your origin, your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. That, them are fighting words in Ezekiel's time. What is Ezekiel pointing out? What is the word of the Lord there? He says, if you look at your real ancestry, I called you out of such paganism. Abraham wasn't a righteous person. Joshua tells us he was as pagan as anyone else was a pagan. God called him out of that. And adopting him, it goes on. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out of the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Notice there, what you have then is one who is the offspring of pagans, who was born and abandoned immediately. What you have then are orphans. The people of Israel are likened to orphans abandoned on the side of the road. We get, and when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up, became tall, and arrived at full adornment. You see what God just explains he did to Israel. You were orphaned there when Abraham was young. Son of a Canaanite. And in Amorites, but I adopted you, I raised you, I loved you, I showed you gospel kindness. This shows up in the New Testament. We had time, we look at more passages, but Romans 8 and, and, and others would be sufficient. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Maybe you should highlight that in your Bible right now. And those who weren't paying attention, let me say that again. Maybe you should highlight that in your Bible right now. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Anyone paying attention? You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. In the Roman world, an adopted son had the equal rights to a biological child, including to be an heir. We'll see this later. And so, by whom we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. And if children, here it is, heirs, heirs and fellow heirs with who? The Son of God, Christ. See what a difference this ought to make for all of us? How many of us right now are seeking for identity in things that will never give you what it is that you're actually looking for? Because you weren't meant to find your identity in those things. In Christ, by confession and repentance, we become his. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel. Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under law, so that we might redeem adoption as sons. See there, he sent his son to make us his sons. And we are made sons when we are purchased with a price by the blood of Jesus, whom we become joint heirs with the resurrected son of God. Finally, 1 John 3. See what kind of love the father has given to us? We would be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. Want another verse to highlight? A verse you put on that mirror and you get up every morning? We are called children of God and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And we know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's what we're doing here, isn't it? I've shared with you before, my wife is scared to death that the older I get, the more like my father I become. But the older I get, as a father myself, I get it. Not just the stubbornness and the crankiness, but I I get the other good stuff that aren't as funny, you know, more serious stuff. I get it. Because you can't escape becoming like mom and dad, can you? If you are a child of God, made so by adoption as a result of God's kindness at the cross, how can you not become like him? So Jesus then is the eternal son of God who became the adopted son of Joseph to rescue orphans like you and I. Don't underestimate what it means for us to cry, Abba, Father. So can I just, just in closing, then we're done. How did God show his gospel kindness to us at the cross? I I think I, I could summarize this in five ways. God's kindness was proactive. God's kindness was open handed. God's kindness was gracious. God's kindness was generous. And God's kindness is unending. Let's pray.